Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be with you on this beautiful fall Sunday. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. Kids are funny, aren't they? (laughs) Now this may be a difficult exercise, but just work with me. Can you think of a time where you or one of your kids misbehaved and then attempted to justify their behavior with some 10 million excuses? Hard to believe, hard to fathom, I know, but just think of that instance. Whether it's something like, well, why did you hit your sister? Why did you steal that from your brother? Or why did you let the chickens out of the coop? For instance, hypothetical only. And how many times is there or your response to being asked those probing questions some solid, iron-tight, logical reasoning? Well, I hit her because there was a bee on her head and I was really just trying to protect her from it and just so happened to strike her and miss the bee and hit her head, or I didn't steal the toy, I was just looking at it to make sure all the pieces were there, they tend to, he tends to lose them when he plays with it, and then you walked in just as I was about to give it back. Or, well, the chickens needed exercise, so I decided to release them and let them wander. Don't you want free-range eggs? My guess is you've heard similar reports from your kids. Now, if you're a wily parent like me, you see right through these excuses for what they are, right? They're bogus. But what are they trying to do? What do we try to do when we make these excuses? I think what's often happening here is not reasoning, but rationalization. Now, what's the difference? Rationalization is our our brains attempting to explain or justify our behavior or an attitude with, with logical Reasons. Now, the difference between reasoning and rationalization is that with reasoning, we're trying to apply logic to come to some conclusion. When we're rationalizing, we already have a conclusion. We're just trying to give reasons for it. And rationalizations are the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of or to justify why we act the way that we do, why we commit certain sins, why we treat ourselves, our kids, our spouses, and the others the way that we do. And it's easy for us to read stories in the Bible, like this golden calf scene, and think, well, that's just wild, right? I would never do such a thing. But if there's one thing that is self-evident about ourselves, is that we know how we ought to behave, and we do not, in fact, behave that way. In short, we sin. We break the law of God, and thus, we deserve the wrath of God. Now, do we consider, often, the wrath of God? I know we likely don't like to think about the wrath of God, but have you ever paused and considered just the harsh reality of it? In his wonderful book, The Difficult, listen to this title, The Difficult Doctrine of the love of God, D.A. Carson says that wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath, but there will always be love in God. 
where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in their rebellion, there must be wrath. Or God is not the jealous God he claims to be, and his holiness is impugned. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. And we must not diminish the holiness of God. Our God will not be mocked. He is infinitely loving, infinitely holy, and because of our sin, infinitely wrathful. And yet there is hope for the people of God. There is mercy for guilt-ridden men and women and rest for the heavy laden weighed down by the sin and rebellion. So, as the people of God, let us turn to the word of God. Now, this book, these words are not just words on a page. They are our very lives. So, out of reverence for this word, would you please stand, if you're able, as I read Exodus 32, 15 through 35. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered round him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, 
if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Let's pray. God, these are sobering words. Your holiness will not be impugned. So God, would you open our eyes to think of ourselves honestly, to see you clearly for who you are and what you have done in Christ. We need you now to open our eyes. So bless the preaching of your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 32, the whole story is about a rebellious people, a people who had literally just received incredible blessings. They were powerfully saved and rescued from the bondage of slavery and out of Egypt's iron grasp, brought to God himself, heard his voice, received his covenant and law, were given instructions to make a way for God's presence to dwell in their very midst, and yet they still rebel. Like a parent who walks away from their kid for two seconds and immediately starts fussing again. It's just, come on. (laughs) And yet, as we look at the second part of this dramatic scene, we must fight the temptation to assume that we would never do something so foolish. And we must fight the temptation to assume that God does not deal or demand the same allegiance that he demanded then. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we, the people of God, have really not changed all that much since the events described here in Exodus 32, except for one glorious thing, Christ. So now as we go through this text, here's the lens I believe we need to have as we read and go through it. Despite our great sin against a holy God, we can rest in the mercy and love of Christ. Despite our great sin against a holy God, we can rest in the mercy and the love of Christ. And as we finish the golden calf scene, we're going to see from the fallout three derived commands. This scene is obviously descriptive. It describes events through narrative prose. But even in description, I believe there are prescriptions that, can take, that we can take away from the example of the Israelites next to Mount Sinai. First, we need to hate our sin. Second, we need to repent fully. And third, receive mercy. Number one, hate sin. Picture the scene described here in Exodus 32. Moses had already had his dealings with God, pleading on behalf of the people without having witnessed the scene at all. But on the basis of God's word and what was going on down the mountain, he appeals to God's word again to beg him to keep that word he made to Father Abraham and thus act in a supreme act of mercy. God relents. Now, Moses is headed down the mountain in order to see for himself what's really going on down there. Now, picture this 80-year-old man 
carefully descending this mountain, carrying down two tablets of the law, inscribed and made by God's own hand. He meets his assistant, Joshua, halfway down the trail. And as they descend together, Joshua, he he hears this, this racket coming up to them from the camp. And it's just this cinematic scene of discovery with the Gandalf-like Moses wisely and knowingly correcting young Joshua's concern about the noise being battle cries. Rather, instead, corrects him and names it for what it is. It's worship. Revival's broken out in the camp. And as they enter the camp, however, the full depravity of what the Israelites had given into is on full display. Wailing, singing, Worship fills the air, not directed to the proper source of any worship, God himself, but to this golden calf. Moses sees this immediately for what it is, idolatry. One can't help but read the text of scripture and not note how physical, how tactile the scene is described. All of the senses are at play. They hear the sound of singing and wailing so loud that it can be mistaken as war cries. They witness the dancing and the debauchery. This is not the hidden sin in the heart. This is open, unashamed sin against a holy God. Remember, we are physical beings. If our only category for sin is that which is done in the recesses of our hearts, and are wholly unconnected from our bodies, we deceive ourselves. We are physical beings inhabiting physical space. So we, we should expect that our lives, our worship, and our sin to manifest itself physically. So Moses takes in this horrific scene and responds accordingly. Now, we may be tempted to look at Moses' reaction, right? He takes this tablet, these tablets fashioned and produced by the very hand of God and dashes them against the rocks of the mountain. Now, we could read that as an overreaction. There is more going down here, though, than just a righteous fit of rage of a temperamental man. The physical breaking of the tablets was not Moses in a fit of rage, but a prophetic act, showing physically, tangibly, what the Israelites had done. They'd abandoned the law of God and disobeyed his covenant, like Jesus clearing the temple in Matthew 21. This is not some uncontrollable anger that just boiled over, but a righteous communication and demonstration of the result of their sin. By shattering the tablets, Moses is declaring to the watching sinful Israelites just how serious of a thing they had done. The very God who spoke to them from the mountain, who had just made incredible promise to them, has seen what they have done. The covenant is not dissolved, for God has already relented on the basis of his promise, but because of their actions, they are out of fellowship with the very God who saved them and loves them, and they deserve what's coming to them. Now, do we think of sin, of our sin, the way that Moses does? Clearly, Moses looks on this scene and just cannot believe his eyes. He's disgusted, he's enraged, he's incensed, and critically, he acts. He acts, he hates their sin, he clearly despises their sin in the way that they should 
think about their sin, but clearly don't. In fact, in a twisted way, they view this entire event as their own self-expression of worship to God. They are worshiping in their own way, despite what God says. But if the law and the temple plans mean anything, it is that we do not come to God on our own personal, subjective terms. Rather, we come to God on his terms and on his terms alone. Moses' reaction gives a picture of how the people of God ought to feel toward their sin. If, if we don't hate our sin, we will never have victory over it. Is there some sin that you are currently wrestling with, you struggle with, that you know is sin, but you don't hate it? Is there some rationalization going on that you go through regularly to tell yourself it's not that bad? Be honest with yourself as Moses is here and treat that sin as Moses treats it here and like the sovereign God of the universe treats it. Hate it. And we must hate our sin if we're going to have any victory over it. If our view of our sin is limited to the point where we see it only as breaking some arbitrary rules set out by our parents or our church or by culture, we will never be able to wage war against it. John Owen, in his magisterial book, The Mortification of Sin, he famously says it this way. I'm sure you've heard this. Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now John Owen says it well, but he did not say it first. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Notice the violence required. Warfare is needed. And before we can wage war on our sin, we must recognize that we are in a war and that the enemy is our sin. And we can hold no quarter for this enemy. We must subdue it, kill it, mortify it, and by God's spirit given to us on the basis of Christ crucified, we will have victory over it. And the stakes, my friends, the stakes are so high. Remember Colossians 3, 6. Why must we put to death our sin, our idolatry like the Israelites? Because, Colossians 3, 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God, his holy, righteous, justified anger against our sin. The stakes could not be higher, and the consequences are real. Moses, after destroying the tablets and then destroying the pagan idol, he, he forces them to deal with the consequences. He forces the people to drink the water containing the dust of their false god. Why? in order to teach them to despise the taste of their sin. So, what are we to do with our sin? 
What is our method for slaying the sin which we must hate? And again, we learn from the Israelites and Aaron's failure. We must, number two, repent fully. Repent fully. Having dealt with the immediate aftermath of returning down the mountain and and cleaning up this mess, now Moses' attention turns to the one responsible, Aaron, his brother, who he left in charge while he was up on the mountain to meet with God. It is he who is responsible for whatever happens in that camp. The conversation between Aaron and Moses in verses 21 through 24, it's, it's reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. After Eve's disobedience and Adam's abdication, God comes to Adam demanding answers for what happened. And Adam, the coward that he is, blame shifts and deflects, blaming Eve for their situation and ultimately blaming God by declaring, well, the woman you gave me made me do it. It's bold. (laughs) But here at the foot of Mount Sinai, we see history repeating itself, don't we? Where sin is, we should expect similar cowardly, wicked, and destructive attitude. Moses comes to his brother, Aaron, demanding answers for what he has done. Look how Moses frames his opening inquisition. He says in verse 21, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Essentially, what What evil could these people have done against you to cause you to hate them so much to lead them in such high rebellion against God? Look at how quickly they have forgotten God. The fire and the voice on the mountain, the cloud by day and the the fire, fire by night, the doer of such wondrous plagues in Egypt. They're standing next to that same mountain and they sin anyway. Moses is demanding answers. He's demanding reasons. And like all who have sinned against God, there are none. Just like Adam's lame response, Aaron's rationalization is pathetic. It's the people's fault, don't you see? They're the ones who are set on evil all of the time. They they threatened me. they, They pressured me. So I did the only thing I could. I gathered their gold and I I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Just like his first sinful parents, Aaron does all that he can to distance himself from his actions and to show that it's not really his fault at all, but someone else's. He claims passivity. He didn't know what else to do. And he just threw some gold in the fire and out came this golden calf. However, remember from last week, Exodus 32, 3 and 4 says, so all the people took off their rings of gold that were in the ears, their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, it's easy to see Aaron's shame. But this book, this word is a mirror to us, to our hearts. Do we see our own shame? How often do we, when confronted with our sin, placate and blame shift and and call our sin something else? Rather than sin, we call it a struggle. 
rather than naming our selfishness and pride as in biblical sinful categories, we chalk them up to just personality tendencies. Rather than naming our temptation to gossip as sin, we call ourselves concerned and caring people, just wanting to help. In verse 25, Moses names what's happening as the people being, quote, broken loose. Some translations, they they translate that phrase, broken loose, as were made naked. Again, the Garden of Eden imagery returns. However, this time, while naked and unashamed, they should very much be ashamed. Even the neighboring pagan enemies look on them with disgust. The insanity and embarrassment of their sin is evident to all but to themselves. And Moses lays the blame squarely on one man, Aaron. According to Moses, the sin of the people did not just spring out of nowhere, like Aaron's claim that the golden calf just popped out of the fire. No, Aaron, a type of a sinful Adam, is culpable. To Moses, it is Aaron who caused the people to break loose. It is Aaron who made them naked. And it is he who brought shame and wrath on the people of God. So, What's required next is simple. Not easy, but simple. And that's repentance. Repentance. Aaron and all who took part in the debauchery needed to name their sin, recognize it as a vile sin against a holy God, repent, and by God's grace, obey his commands. Repentance, fully unqualified repentance, is how We put to death that which is earthly in all of us. Listen to the amazing grace promised in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. John says, if we say we have no sin, like Aaron, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any unrepentant sin in your life right now? How long have you followed Adam and Aaron, deceiving yourself by claiming that there is no sin? Make today, today, the day that you confess that fully. Unqualified. No excuses. Confess that sin to God and to whoever you have sinned against. And look to what he has promised you when you do forgiveness. And we see that playing out at the end of Exodus 32 as well. Number three, the command, receive mercy. Receive mercy. The first half of the golden calf episode, verses 1 through 14, which which Ryan preached last week, it's almost like the heavenly courtroom. Okay, God is prosecutor and judge, Moses the mediator and defense. And on the mountain though, mercy has already been decided. He has decided to relent on the basis of his promises. But in 32, 15 through 35, we see the consequences of that all play out. See, consequences are inevitable to our sin. But if you belong to the people of God, you no longer relate to God as judge, but as father. And that makes all the difference. Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, sooner or later... God will confront our sin, just as Moses confronted 
the Israelites. Out of his great mercy and on the basis of his covenant, God had already decided not to destroy the Israelites. However, their sin still needed to be dealt with in a godly way. And this meant that they were going to have to face its consequences. This is always necessary. Forgiveness removes the guilt of sin, but not its consequences. And nor should it. God uses the consequences of our sin, this is critical, in a sanctifying way. Teaching us never to do the same thing again. Like a loving father disciplining his children. The consequences of sin are not purely punitive, but corrective and instructive. But as we look at the end of this scene, it's hard to see how killing 3,000 men that day was merciful or loving or corrective. Why the slaughter of 3,000 men? Well, the text implies that these 3,000 that were killed were the most unrepentant, refusing to turn from their sin. And the execution of those 3,000 was a message to the 3 million that they all deserved to die for what they did. And yet, because of Moses' mediation and God's rich mercy, they are spared. Moses continues to lead and mediate for the people by returning to the top of the mountain of God in an attempt to make atonement for their sin. But Moses pleaded the mercy from the Lord earlier on the basis of God's covenantal promises. Now, he personalizes it. He begs the Lord to forgive their sin, and if not, he pleads that he receive the punishment, that he receive the punishment that the people deserve. Where Aaron said, the people made me do it, Moses says, my life for theirs. Moses, the, per- the man the people rejected after feeling abandoned by him that led to the creation of the golden calf, he is willing to give up his own life for theirs. And while Moses' heart displays the heart of a good and godly man, his offering would never suffice. And yet, there is one whom Moses points to who was also rejected, whose substitutionary life and death could actually pay for the sins of his people. There is one who stood before the judge of the universe, completely innocent, and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There is one who actually did stand in the breach that our sin caused and declaring my life for theirs. Take mine. There is one who received the full weight of the just and infinite wrath of God so that you and I could receive the full and free and infinite love of the Father. There is one who died so that you could not experience death but life. There is one whose death secures for you mercy and grace and peace with the Almighty, Holy God. There is one who right now pours out his spirit among us, enabling us to actually change and no longer walk in the ways of the flesh, but to put on the new man, secured for us by his great and gracious sacrifice. My friends, there is one 
It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you cling to him? It's only because of Christ that we can have our eyes open to the filth of our sin and see it for what it is. Rebellion against a perfect and holy God. And it's only because of Christ that we can hate our sin, confess that sin, and miraculously receive from him mercy and forgiveness. Do you want to be freed from bitterness? Do you want to be freed from pornography? Do you want to be freed from pride and selfishness and idolatry? Avail yourself of Christ. It is only in him that we are spared from the wrath of God, the the true and better Passover lamb, paid for you and for me at the cross on Calvary, in his blood shed for you and body broken for you. Only in him can we actually experience victory over sin because of his final victory over the grave. It is Christ, the Son of God incarnate, who is right now interceding for you like Moses to the Israelites before the Father. So my friends, behold this great and loving Savior. and Fear not. Hate your sin. Repent of that sin fully and rest in the unimaginable, unfathomable mercy of God secured for you by the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we need you. Every hour we need you. On our own, there is no difference between us and the idolatrous Israelites with the golden calf. And yet, because of your rich mercy, you have made us alive on the basis of nothing within ourselves, but sheerly out of your sheer mercy and grace, you have made us alive in Christ Jesus and adopted us as sons and daughters and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What unimaginable grace and mercy and peace that we now experience. God, we want that peace. We need it more than anything. And you have promised us, and God, we ask that you would keep your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive. So, Jesus, we turn to you. We look to you. Because it's in you that the wrath of God is satisfied. On our behalf. And we receive this amazing grace and love. And it's in that precious name we pray. Amen.